Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the season finale of the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast. Uh, this has been season one and uh, kind of devoted to decision-making biases. Uh, next season, which will start up in a couple months, uh, will be devoted to a whole different set of cognitive biases. But uh, it's uh, been great. Um, uh, I've been getting great feedback from people about the podcast, and I will definitely be continuing, but we're going to take a short break before then. But now here is the exciting uh, conclusion to the season, um, and I'm going to start by asking you a question, right? Okay. There are two hazardous waste sites that are responsible for um, causing uh, deaths from cancer. One causes eight per year, another one causes four deaths per year. Um, We've come up with a solution. Actually, we've come up with several responses we're trying to choose from. Uh, Two of these responses are going to reduce the overall number of uh, uh, cancers, uh, deaths by cancer, by six, right? Another one uh, will only reduce it by five, but it will, in fact, eliminate all of the deaths that happen at the site that causes four per year. So which one do you choose, right? So when they uh, actually did this as an experiment, um, perhaps not uh, surprisingly, um, they went with the one that eliminated all of the deaths, right? Even though overall it actually resulted in more deaths. So the one that reduced deaths by five and eliminated them entirely at the one site, that means that one extra person is dying, but you are eliminating all of them on one side. And this this is all due to something called the zero-risk bias. Um, so uh, the zero-risk bias is kind of like a, a variation on a theme. Uh, we talked before about neglect of probability, and this is sort of an extreme version of that, where you would rather reduce the risk of something to zero, right, even if um, the actual overall benefit is worse. Um and uh, because it makes you feel safer because we like certainty. So we talked a little bit before about a version of this with the uh, U.S. Food Act of 1958 and the neglect of probability episode. And just to recap, they basically said, okay, you are going to eliminate all carcinogens from food, period, no matter what. And while this sounds great, yay, there's no more carcinogens in our food, um, I've reduced the risk of eating a carcinogen to zero. What happened was they had to you know, use substitutes Uh, for some of the foods that they were trying to make, and some of those substitutes were actually worse, and they caused all these other diseases that weren't cancer but could still kill you, right? Whereas if they'd kind of been a little more moderate in their response, they would have realized, hey, some of these have like 0.0000001% of this carcinogen that isn't ever actually going to kill you ever. Um, uh, If you had just gone with those, you would actually be causing fewer deaths, right? But because we wanted to reduce the risk of this one thing, right? Having any carcinogens in our food to zero, like that was preferable. Um, and this also happens with like super fun sites. And it's to the point where we would rather have like a large decrease in a small risk than a small decrease in a large risk, even if the numbers like favor having the small decrease, right? So, uh, a large decrease in a small risk of, um, I don't know, losing money on this one investment, right? Uh, I can reduce that, uh, but the small decrease in the larger risk of this other investment, even if the actual dollar amounts are different and I'd actually save, let's say, a million dollars with that small decrease um, rather than like $100 on the large decrease, I'd still rather go with the large decrease because I'm not thinking about the numbers, the quantity. I'm thinking about the proportion. And this is just a human flaw. We have an easier time wrapping our mind around proportions than around actual quantities, right? And what makes this even worse is that um, we are getting better, better at... Uh, accumulating data and detecting risk, 
So we can actually tell if we haven't really reduced the risk to zero or not. Um, so it's making us even more obsessive about like, oh no, we have to reduce this risk to completely nothing, right? Uh, totally scorch the earth, right? And that's actually a relatively difficult thing to do. And you can invest a lot of resources into that for a very small gain. I remember reading um, the uh, Hot Zone, which was about the um, Ebola outbreak in Reston in the late 90s, I think. And they talk about this one monkey house where they're keeping these monkeys that they were experimenting on. And um, they got Ebola and they had to just basically scorch the earth, right? Completely destroy every living thing in that building. Um which is, turns out, is a lot harder than it sounds. Like, to literally kill every microbe in a building, it's extremely difficult, right? Um, and, uh, and it's very difficult to know that you've actually got everything. Um, and in that case, yes, it makes sense to invest <laughs> a lot of time and energy into that, but we do that with everything, right? And it's very hard to actually ever reduce the risk to zero. So you can find yourself wasting resources uh, trying to do something that isn't actually going to help you that much. Um, and a lot of this is just the fact that we prefer absolute certainty um, to less certainty, even if you gain more with less certainty, right? So uh, even if I could have a choice between reducing the risk to 5% of something bad happening um, and saving way more lives, I'd, I'd still rather re reduce the risk of to 0% and save fewer lives, like, which is absurd, but that's just how we think. Um, and another version of this is uh, the housing crisis, right? So... Uh, perceived absolute certainty is really dangerous, right? This works in the other other direction, right? If we perceive something as safe, absolutely safe, um, I don't have to think about it, it's that safe, that's a problem. And we saw this with the housing crisis. Like, we believed, the collected wisdom was that housing uh, was always, 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 always a good investment. You didn't have to think about it, just do it, right? This, of course, created the bubble, which led to the 2007-2008 crisis. But... Uh, what you might not know is that actually led to yet another crisis because, or at least yet another um, bubble of sorts, because uh, a lot of people then said, okay, well, what's something safe I can invest my money in now? And they settled on T-bills, right? Government bonds, because, well, it's, it's, it's guaranteed, right? And as a result, they ended up driving the yield of those bonds down to like generational lows, right? So there's no way you'd ever actually make money now off of these bonds because everybody was buying them and investing in them. Um, so they sort of traded in run, run risk for another and they said, look, I'm definitely not going to lose my money if I do this, right? I've just gone through this horrible thing. I'm going to, but I'm absolutely certain. Now I can be absolutely certain I'm not going to lose any money, but they could also be absolutely certain they wouldn't make any money either. Um, and not for nothing, but if, you know, all these big companies were being devastated by the housing crisis, just how long do you think those T-bills are going to be valid, right? Like there was a big issue there. That was part of where Too Big to Fail came from. Um... So anyway, like absolute certainty, um, it's just not worth it because you can't really achieve it. And it'll actually probably cause more problems, even when you think you have it in a, in a positive way. Um, uh, but yeah, just to, to, to reiterate it, it comes back to this notion of proportions and quantity. Um, this one um, uh, PSY-FI blog um, put it a really great way. They said, like, if you saw that there was a hundred increase in knife deaths, you'd be like, oh, my God, that's terrible, until you realize, oh, that means it went from one to two, right? <laughs> but we, we don't think about that. We think about those proportions. Uh, in fact, there's a pretty cool radio lab that talks about how different cultures, like, you know, that, that numbers aren't something that we necessarily inherently are born with, right? In certain cultures that never really had a concept of math, they kind of go one and more than one like that's that's their counting right so that's that's pretty much it or like one and maybe ten and then everything else um 
And uh, that just sort of, you know, goes to show that that we don't we're not born with an inherent sense of counting. We really do have to learn that as a concept um, and think about that. Whereas proportions, oh, we're fine with. I get one versus many. Got it, right? Um, but also, this is this is also just about how we love absolutes. Uh, whenever I have to make a choice, we talked a little bit about this with neglected probability. If I have to make a choice between like something that is zero percent and I don't have to think about it anymore versus, oh, I can reduce this risk down to 15%, which is still really low, right? Um, but I still have to think about it. It's still a possibility, right? Um, that's harder for me. That, 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 that's a cognitive load. My mind still has to do some thinking around that. Um, and I'd rather have a situation where I don't have to think about it. I, I, I don't want to have to think about it. And the best way to not have to think about it is to reduce the risk to zero, right? Or at least believe that I reduced the risk to zero. Um, this gets into a lot of trouble. Um, and a, a slight variation on that uh, that I've been thinking a lot about lately is uh, recently there have been accusations. Um, I'll start. Uh, Joss Whedon has been uh, accused by his ex-wife of cheating on her for like 15 years, right? And just being basically a hypocrite when it comes to pro-feminist issues. He's behaving uh, publicly in a very feminist way, but privately in a very decidedly non-feminist way. Um, and this has been, you know, troubling, you know, to me personally, not to mention how much it must be troubling for his ex-wife, <laughs> put that on the table as a much higher um, uh, pain for her, for her than for me. But the reason it's been troubling to me is because Joss Whedon is a hero of mine, right? And I would prefer to believe in an absolute perfect image of him as a pro-feminist figure, right? That gives me something to look up to as a feminist, um, as a creative person, right? I love his movies. I love his work. I love that they are great as pieces of art, but also as pieces of, you know, uh, pro-feminist, um, pro-social kinds of messages um, and dynamics. Um, and I'd love to sort of think of those as being in this perfect little bubble where I can not have to think about whether or not that's a good thing or that what he does is good and that when I think of Joss Whedon, I can, without having to think about it, sort of just put a stamp on saying, yep, Dave approved, that's awesome. Whereas if I have to say that now his relationship with feminism is problematic at best and ruined at worst, that's harder for me to, um, to, to grapple. Well, it's harder for me to grapple with, and I have to grapple with it, right? I have to now think about it. It's this cognitive love. It's no longer an absolute, right? And we love absolutes. And to shed a little more light on this, so it's, it's the sort of thing where, you know, uh, like... We actually, like, me and my wife, we actually named our kid, like, his middle name is Joss, right? <laughs> like, that's so much. It wasn't the only reason we gave him that middle name, but it certainly was a factor. And we bonded over Joss Whedon stuff when we were first going out. We binged all of Buffy. Um, and it's interesting that she, like, so I'm sitting in a position where I'm like, oh my god, now I have to burn all my Joss Whedon DVDs. I have to, you know, disavow any, <laughs> any knowledge of him. we got to change our kid's name. And she is not having this reaction because she is capable of having a more complicated relationship with him and his work and sort of hold in her mind that yes he has created great work but yes he has done some terrible things or at the very least is accused of doing some pretty terrible things um and she's able to sort of hold those two con she, she she is okay with that cognitive load right whereas my reaction is oh how can I best eliminate this cognitive load? I can either defend him to the death, right, and sort of say, oh, well, his ex-wife must be lying and get into all sorts of terrible blame-the-victim kind of politics that I find reprehensible in any other circumstance, or I can go to the other end and say, oh, you know what, just scorched earth, let's 
change our kid's name, destroy all of the DVDs and all of the, you know, or delete all the files that we have of like all of his movies and just never think of him again, right? He's dead to me, right? That's where that phrase comes from, right? They're dead to me. That's an easy way to say like, I never have to think about them again. I, I can be, it's absolute, right? Because death is absolute. Um, all of this to say like, looking um, into zero risk bias makes me realize that's really what this is all about in a certain way is not wanting to have a complicated problematic relationship with someone whose work I admire and whose contribution to feminism I admire. Um, that's, uh, that doesn't work, right? Like either of those two absolute options is problematic is, 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 is not helpful. Whereas if I can choose to have, um, a more complicated relationship with him and his work that's just maps better to reality. Um, so, uh, so, so it's yet another place where the zero risk uh, bias can get you into trouble. Because I, I basically wanted to reduce the risk of <laughs> anything bad happening because of my admiration of his work, like either being aligned with someone who's not really a feminist and, you know, sort of suddenly having that, you know, projected onto me, um, or completely abandoning work that I love and admire and have learned from, right? I wanted to reduce that, reduce that risk to zero, but either of those, either of those, A, can't really happen anyway, um, but B, would sort of, I don't know, disrespect reality. <laughs> um, so, uh, so a pretty emotional conclusion for me anyway to, uh, to the season, uh, but I just goes to show these biases are real and they have a real impact and um, let's continue to study them and talk about them and learn from them and grow from them. Um, that is all for, uh, this season of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Like I said, we will return in November with new episodes, a whole new season, a whole new set of biases to look at. Um, it has been my pleasure to talk about these with you. Um, thank you so much. I am David Dylan Thomas for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.